Well, my name is Jerry. I'm the campus pastor here in Carmel. And uh, for those of you that don't know me, I'd love to meet you after service. Um, For those of you that don't know me, we have four kiddos and we had something really tragic happen in our house this week. Summer died. Summer died on Thursday. If you are a student and you are not yet, school hasn't started yet for you, my kids would want you to know the end of summer is near. It's just, it's coming. We, we've actually had a great summer as, as a family. We were able to travel out of town and see family. We went to Holiday World last week. We've spent a lot of time just making memories, and it's been, it's been really, really good for us. Uh, but speaking of making memories, a couple years ago, some friends invited us up to Lake Wawasee in northern Indiana. We had never been there before, so we got to go hang out on the lake for a while. It was so much fun. But while we were there, I got to make a memory for myself. I got to do something I had never done before, and I was so excited about it. It was so much fun. I got to jet ski for the very first time. Now, I live a pretty sheltered life, okay? So it was really exciting for me, and I'd I'd always wanted to do that. So we didn't live on a lake, so it was a really big deal. I I hopped on, and I was real cautious, and I kind of motored out to the middle. And once I got comfortable, you know what I did, right? I hammered down, and I took off. And I have to tell you, I've never ridden a bull. I really don't want to ride a bull, but I would like to ride a mechanical bull maybe. But I think that being on a jet ski at high speeds on choppy water has to be the next best thing. I remember thinking, I'm going to get tossed from this thing at any moment, and it is going to be awesome. It was, it was so much fun. So I had so much fun on my 15-minute joyride that I circled back to the dock, and I convinced my wife to let me take our three boys who were five, seven, and nine out with me. Somebody over here audibly just gasped. <gasps> what awful thing. They're all still alive. It's okay. So I, I, I said, look, we will all wear our jackets. I will not do anything stupid. I got that out of my system a second ago. And so we took off. And as we motored away, I could hear my boys laughing and giggling. And one of them got really brave and said, go faster, daddy. And so we started going fast. And they were laughing a little more. Go faster, daddy. So I go a little faster and I would take the turns. And that, that kept up for a while until one of them finally said, Daddy, slow down. We're all going to die. And so I figured it's probably time to lay off just a little bit. And so being a good dad, I was going to go off to a cove on the side and turn around and just like face the, face the lake and we could see everybody having fun. We were just going to catch our breath. And so we're going over to the side of the lake. I'm slowing down. I'm barely moving. And I moved the handlebars just a little bit to swing the back end around. But what I didn't know was that a, a ski boat, had just gone right past me and its wake caught up to us at just the right time. And it flipped the sea-doo. And we all four went flying into the water. Now, my first thought was we're all wearing life jackets. So when I came up out of the water, I did a really quick head count. There's three boys, one, two, three boys, and the jet ski is still floating. We're good, we're fine, everybody's good, right? But that's what I saw. What I heard was a completely different story. My oldest son, Jude, was laughing hysterically. He thought it was all part of the plan, and he was like, oh, that was great. Let's do it again. But my other two boys, they did not agree with their brother. They forgot they were wearing life vests. They thought they were going to drown, and they started climbing on me. And I, I mean, I was like pushing them off. I'm like, guys, you can swim. Get away. Uh, they, they, and they were saying things like, this is what they were saying. Daddy, you're going to get us killed. Daddy, why have you done this to us? Daddy, you're the worst. I want mommy. Which, if you're a dad and you're trying to make memories with your kids, that's really what you want them to say, right? That's, that's what you're gunning for. Now, in fairness, okay, in fairness to you, when we left the dock that day, we left in the spirit. I left in the spirit of fun and excitement and adventure. I wanted to make some memories 
with our boys. And the truth is, you know, nobody got hurt. We had a little mishap that was not my fault, but the truth at the end of the day was we still live to tell about it, right? And just this week, one of our boys, we tell that story and laugh, and one of my boys this week said, I wish we could go jet skiing again. And I was like, me too, buddy. I'm glad you're not scarred, right? So it's good. But the spirit of the moment was fun and adventure. The truth was we played by the rules and nobody got hurt. But, but here's what's interesting. Have you ever noticed how often truth and spirit intersect in our everyday lives. Think about this. How often does the the spirit behind the motives in your heart intersect with the truth of the moments in your life? It happens all the time. If you sent a text message this week that included words and an emoji, I would argue that you communicated in spirit and in truth, right? The words were true and the emoji put the, exp- like the, the emotion behind it. You're communicating in spirit and truth. If you have a job, you understand the tension between spirit and truth. And it doesn't matter what you do for a living. Maybe you're working in the corporate world and you're trying to climb the ladder, or you're a stay-at-home parent. The spirit behind your work, if you're like me, you want to use all that God has given you to make a mark where you are, to impact the people around you, right? Maybe to build a name for yourself or to make the organization better, but the spirit behind your work matters. But here's the thing unbridled spirit can be dangerous, right? Like unbridled, you could be the best at work and you could have a great spirit, but if your spirit would lead you to make a decision that would be unethical or immoral or illegal, what's the truth? The truth is you are probably not gonna have a job long or you're gonna end up in jail and it wouldn't be good. The spirit behind our work has to line up with the truth of what's good and right and permissible. And the same is true for our relationships. I want you to think about a relationship that you have with someone. It could be a spouse, a child, a friend, a coworker, a parent. Now, you know this, the spirit behind every healthy relationship is based on some degree of mutual respect and love for that other person, right? That's, that's how you operate. But the moment someone in the relationship decides to step outside of the boundaries that have been set, they, they violate the trust that's been established. Well, what happens to the relationship? The spirit suffers, right? The spirit behind the relationship suffers, and it may never recover. And so here's my point. This intersection of spirit of truth and truth, it, it takes place all the time, all around us. It happened to me on the lake that day, and it happens to us all the time. And Jesus understood this. He knew this. He actually talked about it, and, and, and we can learn from what he has to say about it. But some of us, if you're like me, you're probably trying to strike the balance, the perfect balance of spirit and truth at work, at home, at school, or in a relationship. But Jesus says, well, let me tell you about spirit and truth from the most important aspect of life. And according to Jesus, if we can strike the balance or if we can live in spirit and truth in this one particular area, the benefits will flow down into every other area of our life as well. And so uh, for the next two weeks, Steve said, mentioned this, we're entering into this series that's creatively entitled Spirit and Truth. And for the next two weeks, we're going to look at what Jesus has to say about walking and living and obeying God, worshiping God when it comes to not just spirit and not just truth, but spirit and truth. Now, 2,000 years ago, there was a guy whose name was John, and John had an incredible privilege. He got to be one of Jesus's very best friends when he walked the earth. And he traveled with Jesus, and he wrote a couple of different letters that are contained in the New Testament. And he tells us where Jesus went and and what he did and what he said. And he tells us about interactions that he had with people. He recorded conversations that Jesus had with people. And today we're going to look at a specific conversation that Jesus had, and the topic turns itself to worship. 
Okay, so if you want to follow along with us today, we're going to be in chapter four of John's gospel. This is John's best known work. It's in the New Testament. It's on page 741 in the Bibles around the room. If you want to flip there or if you want to swipe there on your phone, you can catch up. But while you're turning there, I want to set the scene for you. I want you to understand what is taking place, where Jesus is and what's going down. Okay, in John chapter four, Jesus has stopped for a water break in the middle of enemy territory. He is in the land of Samaria. And, and in those days, Samaria was located in the very center of Israel. There was northern Israel and southern Israel, and Samaria was right in the middle, and no good Jew would go to Samaria. But that's where Jesus is, taking a water break. And while he's there, here's what's crazy. He finds himself engaged in a very deep conversation about worshiping God. And he's talking to a woman who was a Samaritan. Now, what it meant to be a Samaritan was you were half Jewish and half Assyrian. And you might be thinking, well, what's the big deal? Why does that matter? Well, in those days, at those times, that wasn't just, uh, that wasn't just a big deal for the Jews. It was a deal breaker. Jews would not willingly interact or participate with Samaritans. And so Jesus is talking to this, to this woman. Uh, for those of you, just to help you understand what this would be like, if you're a Harry Potter fan, you, you'll, you might get this. Um, the Jews viewed themselves as purebloods. They were, they were good. They were the best. And they, they, they were just, they looked down on everybody for not being like them. But the Samaritans were like mudbloods. They were worthless half-breeds with a half-baked theology. And they just thought everything that they had to say about God was, was use, useless and worthless. So it was a pretty awkward place for Jesus to be. It would have been a pretty awkward conversation for Jesus to have. But here's the other thing. This particular woman was known for her shady past. Okay, and so there's Jesus. He's in the middle of this conversation and it is emotionally, politically, socially, racially charged. And he's in this, the most unexpected place imaginable. It's awkward, it's politically incorrect, but there, there he is, deep in enemy territory with this shady lady and they start this conversation and the topic turns to worship. And so we're gonna pick up the conversation in John chapter four, verse 20. The woman is speaking to Jesus, and she says this, our ancestors, so what she's saying is, I'm a Samaritan, you're in Samaria, our ancestors, the people that live around here for the last 700 years, we have worshiped on this mountain. This is a sacred place for us. But you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is on your sacred mountain in Jerusalem. Now, at first, it seems like this lady is trying to enter into a theological debate with Jesus. And I think we would all agree that just wouldn't be wise, right? If you're going to debate theology with anybody, anybody but Jesus is a good option, right? But I don't really think that's what she's trying to do. Have you ever tried to ask a question, but you didn't form it as a question? You ask a question and there's a period at the end instead of a question mark. I think that's what this lady's doing. I think what she's really trying to ask is, okay, you seem like you know some things about God. Where is the best place to worship? What's the best way to do that? And I bet if we were honest, I bet if we went around the room, we've all wondered this to some degree or another. Maybe you've never asked this question out loud, but you've wondered, yeah, like what is worship? Does it have to take place at a certain time and a certain day in a certain place? Does that matter? Do you have to wear a certain kind of clothes in order to worship appropriately? Uh, does a pastor or a priest have to be there in order for it to be official or legit? Um, do you have to sing certain types of songs I grew up in a tradition where we were taught to stand, sit, and kneel for whatever reason. That just, maybe it kept us awake, but it kept us engaged in worship. Um, is, are you supposed to have incense burning? I mean, that seems like it would make it a little more official, right? Or if you just had lights and haze, it would really set the mood. 
And so you might chuckle at some of those things, but haven't you ever wondered, like, does, does God care about any of that? Is, is any of that even really worship? Or maybe a friend has asked you a question like this, and you're like, I really don't know. Maybe you made up the answer, or you just said, I don't know. I don't know. Does God care? Well, thankfully, Jesus gives this woman an answer, and it's a really good answer that would apply to all of us. Listen to what he says. He says, woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain here in Samaria nor in Jerusalem where the Jews live. So right away, Jesus makes it clear that it really doesn't matter where worship takes place. He takes where off the table. He keeps going, you Samaritans worship what you do not know, but we Jews worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Now, it kind of sounds like Jesus is being a jerk, doesn't it? He's kind of like putting it in her face. But here's the thing. He, what he is saying is, look, if we're going to talk about worship, you got to talk about the scriptures. And the scriptures teach us that worship is centered around the Messiah. And the scriptures also tell us that the Messiah is going to be Jewish. And so he's letting her know who you worship is much more important than where you worship. And then he turns a corner and he says, now let me tell you how to worship. Look at what he says in verse 23. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks. Now, there is a lot packed in that one little verse. That's why we're taking two weeks to pull this apart, spirit and truth. This week, we're going to look at the spirit side of the equation, okay? But the first thing that we're going to do, we're going to ask a question. What does Jesus mean when he says, a time is coming and has now come? Because up to this point, Jews and Samaritans alike, they, they were focused on where worship took place. That was the most important thing for them. And Jesus is saying, he's making it clear, it's time for something new. Instead of worship being a religious ritual that would be limited to sacred people performing sacred ceremonies in sacred places at sacred times, the time had come, now listen to this, the time had come for true worshipers to know and to relate to God as their heavenly father. That's a big deal not a distant cosmic being, but you're going to know him as your father and you're going to learn how to worship him in spirit and in truth. But I want you to look at the very end of this verse. This jumped out at me. Look at, look at what Jesus says. Those are the kind of people, those are the kind of worshipers that the father seeks. Now, Jesus is letting this woman, this enemy in on a little secret. He not only defines what true worship looks like, he emphasizes the fact that God himself is on the lookout for people like me and like you and like that woman who are learning, who want to learn how to worship God appropriately. Think about that. God is looking on the lookout for true worshipers. So here's the question. Then what does it mean to worship him in spirit? Now, for starters, I want to note something that's obvious. It's, at least it's obvious for me. I'm going to guess it's obvious for many of you. When I think of worship, I think about what we just did a moment ago, where we sing songs, right? I, it's something in my mind tells me that worship uh, is focusing on and engaging with God through music and song. Now, that's part of it. That's a really important part of it. We'll talk about that later. But what I want to do first is let's take musical worship and let's set it to the side for a moment, right? We're talking worship is a whole lot more than just that. The Greek word for worship that John used here means to kiss the hand of or to bow down in reverence or honor to someone. So remember the, remember the woman's question? She was asking, where's the best place to worship? 
Well, the very definition of worship tells us it's not about a where, but it's, it's about a how and a who. And when you think about it, that's a pretty big distinction, right? If you're caught up on where, you're missing out on the how and the who side of things. Now, the Greek word that's used for spirit here is pronounced pneuma, and it means wind, breath, or spirit. It's used a variety of different ways throughout the New Testament. It's used a lot to describe the Holy Spirit, capital S, the Spirit of God, but it's also used with the lowercase s and, and, and to describe the immaterial, eternal inner being that God has placed inside of each one of us, okay? The immaterial, eternal inner being inside of each one of us. But here's where it gets tricky. Different English translations of Scripture translate what Jesus says here differently. Some of them say true worshipers will worship the Father in the capital S Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. In other translations say true worshipers will worship the Father in the lowercase spirit, the inner part of each one of us. And so one of the things I've looked at this week is why, what's the distinction? What, which one are we talking about here? Now, I'm going to tell you what I think, okay? I could be wrong. Um, I'm going to tell you where I lean. I think it's actually both. But I think what, ref- what Jesus is referring to here, he's referring to the inner spirit inside of all of us. He's referring to people like me and you who are seeking to worship and honor God from the very core of their being, from the part of us that no one can see. And in the process, as we learn how to worship God for who he is with all that we are, this is where the Holy Spirit steps in. The Holy Spirit steps in and, and he begins to reshape us at our very core so that we can become more and more like Jesus every day. So the Holy Spirit influences our spirit. Now, this wouldn't be a new idea. When Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? Many of you know what he said. He said, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. In other words, Jesus says the greatest way to honor God, if you want to honor God, you love him with the core of who you are, the very fiber of your being, everything in you that makes you you. And so if we were looking for a, maybe a simple definition of worshiping in the spirit, I think this works. Worshiping in spirit is learning how to worship God for who he is with all that we are. Worshiping in spirit is learning how to worship God for who he is and all that he is with all that we are. And all that we are means everything about us that makes us us. It's not just our bodies. It's not just our minds. It's our emotions. It's our thoughts. It's our gifts. It's our passion. It's our energy. Another way to think about this is that authentic worship occurs when the very core of our being, our spirit, is engaged in honoring God in anything and in everything that we think, do, or say. I'm going to say that one more time. Authentic worship occurs when our spirit, the very core of our being, is engaged in honoring God in anything and in everything we think, do, and say. So worshiping in spirit is not a religious ritual. It's not something that we get to show up and do and check a box and say, oh, I worship God in spirit today. It's actually a spiritual expression. It's an experience that involves our emotions and our thoughts. It involves the part of us that no one can see and that we tend to hide from everyone. The only one that can see that part is God, okay? Now, if that's true, I want you to think a moment, take a moment and think about what it would look like or what it would mean for us to worship God in spirit. Here's a, here's a few examples. Let's go to the obvious one. We can show up together 
and we can play music, we can sing music, and we can worship God. And if our, the part of us that no one can see is aligned with God, then we're worshiping him in spirit. We can put away all of our electronic devices. We can take time to be alone with God in a room and we can read his word and we can pray to him. We can go on a walk in nature and experience him, okay? And if our heart is aligned with God, guess what? I believe we're worshiping him in spirit. We can follow Jesus' example to put the needs of others ahead of our own. And if our heart's in the right place, if our spirit is in it, we're worshiping God in spirit. We can take every single gift, talent, and ability that God has given us, that he's placed inside of us, and when we learn to use them for the benefit of others, not just ourselves, and we do it with the right spirit, we're worshiping God in spirit. We can be generous with our resources, all the resources that he's provided us with to help serve others. And if we do it with the right spirit, we worship God in spirit. So here's my question for you as an individual, with the way that God has created you, how do you best worship him in spirit? What does that look like? I think it's going to be different for me than it is for you. It's going to be different for us depending on the situations that we're in. And, and I just learned this about myself recently. I've always known it, but I didn't know how to categorize it. I think one of the ways I worship God in spirit, one of the ways he's designed me to worship him in spirit happens when I'm having a spiritual conversation with somebody, especially somebody that is not a follower of Jesus. There is something inside of me that goes off. It's like I'm set on fire on the inside. I get excited. I start praying for the person. And I try to keep that conversation going, uh, not in an awkward way, but I try to bring it up from time to time, or I pray that they would bring it up. It just, it excites me. So that's what I think this looks like. I would have never thought about that before I started uh, researching for this. So what does it look like for you? When does your spirit come alive? What, how has God wired you to worship him in spirit? Now, there's also something really important for us to remember. Worshiping God in spirit is not an outward performance, okay? We can, really, we can really mess this up. It's entirely possible for us as individuals or as a group to come together and to sing beautifully, to sing as loud as we can with all of our hearts. And it could be so beautiful that we could package it and sell it. And people are like, it's the most beautiful music I've ever heard. But if our hearts are not aligned with God in singing, if we're just singing, then we are probably missing out on worshiping him in spirit. We can give away large sums of money. We can volunteer for hours in the name of God with smiles on our face. But if we're not doing it from our spirit, it might not be worship. It might just be us being nice people. Let me, let me give you an example. One week from now, we're going to go across the street, or one week from yesterday, we'll be across the street at this block party, right? And we're going to show up in our raspberry red shirts. They are not pink. They're raspberry red, okay? I picked that color specifically. We're going to show up. And if we show up and we're friendly and we smile and we greet and we... Let's say that we throw the best party that Carmel has ever seen. It could be really great and people could leave happy. But if we are not on mission together, if we are not praying for people in advance and praying that God would continue to open doors and praying for the conversations we're going to have that day, we could have a lot of fun and miss out on worshiping him in spirit. And I don't think that's what we would want to do, but we need to be aware of that. That's why we've been saying, pray, pray, pray about this event. We don't want to miss out on an opportunity for it to be worship. The great theologian Charles Spurgeon, he explained worshiping in spirit this way. He says, God does not regard our voices. He hears our hearts. And if our hearts do not sing, then we have not sung at all. That's pretty convicting, isn't it? We can look good. We can sound good. But if our heart's not engaged, there's no worship happening. So maybe if there's anything that we need to remember this week, 
as we're thinking about this, maybe it's simply this. God is seeking true worshipers. That's from the mouth of Jesus. God is looking for true worshipers. And he desires for our worship to come from the deepest part of who we are, the hidden part that nobody can see. So here's a question. Well, then what does that mean? Does that mean it's always a mountaintop experience? Does that mean I always have to feel good about it? I mean, maybe, but maybe it looks different in different situations. I I came across an example of what I think this looks like in Scripture. Um, In Acts chapter 16, we meet two guys named Paul and Silas. Now, if you're not familiar with the book of Acts, it's like a history book in the New Testament. It tells us how the early church was formed, how it functioned, how it grew. It was written by a guy named Luke, and Luke records these details for us. He says that Paul and Silas go out on missionary journeys to plant churches and to share the love of God and teach people about Jesus, right? You would think that they would be received really well, but the truth is they weren't always. They went to the city of Philippi, and a riot broke out against them. Look at what Luke writes. He says in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. They're basically in solitary confinement. Now, I don't know about you. That is a rough day at work, right? I don't know what your worst day at work is, but I'm gonna guess it didn't end like like that. Beaten, mocked, bruised, bloody, chained to a wall. How would you respond? What would you do? I know me well enough to know that my response wouldn't, wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be pleasing, right? So wouldn't you question your decisions throughout the course of the day? My first thought would be, where did all this go wrong? Like, we just showed up in the name of Jesus trying to be kind. Like, why did the people get so mad? Did I say something to offend somebody? God, was I not supposed to be here today? Like, are you mad? Are you here? Where are you? I I think that's the way that most of us would respond, but look how they respond. Verse 25, about midnight, after hanging there for a while, Paul and Silas, chained to a wall, after being beaten and bloody, were singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Can you even imagine It's easy for us to think, well, they were probably just like super Christians, right? They were always happy. If anybody were going to do that, that's the way that they would respond. I think that's giving them too much credit. I think that they were humans just like us. And maybe, what if if they thought, I'm chained to this wall, I'm bleeding to death, I might die anyway. Maybe their response to God there was like, this is all I've got. I can't leave this room. And God, we're out doing your work. I know you're here. And so they begin to sing to him and they begin to pour their heart out to him. Now, maybe you're like me and you read that story and you're like, man, that's heavy, that's deep. Like, what what am I supposed to do with that? Well, maybe what we can learn is that worshiping God in spirit, it might be on a mountaintop, but it might be in the valley. And it might be that we have to channel our emotions towards God in a way that we didn't anticipate. And I don't know if you've ever witnessed this personally, um, but if when you do, it'll change you. I, I got to see something like this a couple months ago. And to be honest with you, it was the last place on earth that I wanted to be. Um, I, I wanted, and, and I hope that none of you ever have to experience this. It was, it was awful, but yet it was beautiful all at the same time. Uh, for those of you that don't know, my mom got really sick out of nowhere. She went into the hospital and you know, when people go into the hospital, you think, oh, she's gonna come home. We're praying, God, she's gonna be home any day. Well, one day turned to 23 days and she never got better. There was never like a positive diagnosis. And so after about two and a half weeks of being in the hospital, she went unconscious and she was on life support. 
And my poor dad was faced with the most impossible situation you can ever imagine. How long do we keep her on life support? And he's got four kids and all of, and 15 grandkids and all their spouses looking at him and like, what are we gonna do? And so he calls us into a conference room at the hospital. And he said, guys, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna do two things. We are going to pray that God performs a miracle because it's obvious that the doctors cannot heal your mom. Okay, we can do that. And then he says, and here's what we're gonna do. The second thing, we are gonna pray that God's will would be done. And he didn't have to say anymore. We knew what he meant. Like it might not go the way that we want. So pray for a miracle, pray that God's will would be done. And a couple of days later, as we prayed, we prayed, we begged God. It became obvious that her body was not going to support itself. And he, he allowed us to make the decision with him. We made the decision to take her off of life support. And all of her siblings and all of my dad's siblings and all of my siblings and our spouses, 30 of us, cram, uh, at least 30 of us, crammed into this little bitty hospital room just to be with my mom before she passed. It was hard. It was awful. Okay, I did not want to be there. And I'm holding my mom's hand and we're all, we're crying and we're emotional. And it came to the very end when it was obvious she wasn't going to be there much longer. And then my dad did something. My dad's not like a, he's a great guy, but he doesn't always share his emotions. He wrapped his arms around my mom and begins weeping. And he says, Heavenly Father, I give my wife back to you. And I remember looking up and thinking, I, I can't believe you just did that. I can't believe you just said that. I wasn't mad. I just couldn't believe that he mouthed those words in that moment. And I'm gonna tell you, it marked me as his son. It marked me as a husband and as a father, as a man, as a child of God, because I thought that that is the most pure form of worship I've ever seen because we were not getting what we wanted or what we prayed for. And he started the prayer with heavenly father. And then he says, I give her to you. Now I'm here to tell you, our family hasn't figured this out. We're not over it. We're not past it. I was really emotional for service when I shared that. But what I'm learning in this season of life, that was not a planned thing by my dad, okay? What I'm learning in this season of my life is that worshiping God in spirit, it can happen anytime, anywhere, in any way. And it's not something that you learn, it's something that you experience. And I'm a very emotional person. I can let my emotions, like I can ride on anger or I can ride on joy, but I'm convinced that worshiping God in spirit is learning to worship him with all of your emotions, but you channel them to him. And just like my dad said, I trust you and this isn't going my way. And it could be a good thing, but it might be a really hard thing. And, and I realize as, as I share that with you, it's deep and it's heavy and it's sad. But here's the really cool thing. Watching my dad lead his family this way, something unexpected happened in the following week. We could physically feel God carrying us through the week. It was the week of Easter. So we worshiped Easter. We celebrated the resurrection in ways that we had never celebrated it before. And as we were learning to worship God in spirit, we didn't know that's what we were doing at the time. But as we worship God in spirit, the truth of who God is came out to us. And he would tell us things like, I am with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. Your mom's okay. She's with me. You're gonna get to see her again in spirit and truth. We're married into one. And guys, I'm telling you, it was hard. I'm not over it. I'll never be over it. But the, I think, I think that's what it looks like. 
My friend Terry shared this quote with me this week. She said, when, when we worship, an unexplainable comfort and hope is ushered into our spirits, uh, in our, into our spirits. And this unexplained comfort occurs because we worship, because worship adjusts our gaze. Worship changes the way that we view God. And so here's my challenge for all of us this week, especially those of us that are following Jesus. If we wanna know what it looks like to really know him, we have to give him all of us, every bit of us, to worship him with all that we are and admit, hey, I don't feel good, but this is, this is what it is. That's what it looks like. And for those of us that love to sing and, and worship with music, we also have to figure out how to worship in practical ways when we leave here and tap into our emotions that way. We can't just be closed off to people. But if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you might think, well, okay, but what's that mean for me? Jesus would say, Jesus told the woman at the well, he said, it all begins with me. If you wanna know what it looks like to worship God in spirit and truth, I am the Messiah that you are looking for. Start with me. And so maybe today is the day that you start with Jesus and you allow the Holy Spirit to shape you and to lead you in becoming a true worshiper of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are with us. And you never leave us, you never forsake us. You're so patient with us. And we mess this worship thing up. We, we, we somehow make it about us and wanting to feel good. But really worship is us enjoying who you are, enjoying you for who you are. So would you help us this week to worship you in spirit and in truth, to engage our emotions, no matter what's going on, no matter what happens in the moment, no matter what is on fire or what is blowing up, no matter how good we feel, help us to channel our emotions and to worship you in spirit and then to hear the words of your truth come back to us. Jesus, we love you. Jesus, we need you. Holy Spirit, would you guide us in becoming more like Christ? It's in his name that we pray.